Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Two years into his presidency, Biden's foreign policy has been defined by the war in Ukraine and a weakening American hegemony, one that also characterized Trump's time in office. It seems American empire is in some sort of decline no matter which party is in control. So where will U.S. foreign policy go from here as the new Cold War era drags on? Does it even matter which party's in control anymore? How are anxieties of a crumbling U.S. playing out in the media and in popular culture? And where does that leave the U.S. left? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by historian Daniel Bessner, an associate professor of international studies at the University of Washington, a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and co-host of the podcast, American Prestige. But before we jump into it, if you appreciate this show, you can help it grow by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. So Daniel Bessner, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you back on. And uh, it's been a while. It's been like, uh, you know, it's been, I feel like, I don't want to say a year, but probably like more than a half a year. So a Yeah, lot of- I think so. Yeah, it's like a lot of new things have happened. <laughs> a lot of old things are still happening. Um, but I guess just to start off, like, obviously, I always want to talk to you about foreign policy. That's where your expertise lies, although you're an expert in a lot of other things, too. But I think it's... I like to think I'm an expert in everything, personally. Yeah, same here, right? That's like the whole... Very modest people. Um, But, you know, I think that since we're like two years, I mean, we've had two full years of this Biden presidency. And I think the first time I talked to you on my show, it was near the beginning. And we kind of talked a little bit about Biden and how he was shaping up to compare to his predecessor. So now that we've got two years of his sort of foreign policy laid out to talk about, I'm wondering... If now that we look back, do you think there's that much that differentiates Biden from his predecessor? I mean, that, you know, what are the differences in forest policy between him and Trump? It seems like more has actually remained the same than has actually changed. I mean, a lot of people had expected the Iran nuclear deal to be resurrected under Biden. That obviously hasn't happened. In fact, quite the opposite. You've just had the Biden administration throwing more and more sanctions at Iran, continuing to allow the Israelis to or give a green light to the Israelis to like assassinate scientists and sabotage ships. Um, things in Latin America may have changed a little bit. That's one place I can see a difference. But as far as like Cold War goes, it's like we're everything's kind of remained the same. I feel like at this point, foreign policy doesn't change much between Republicans and Democrats. I'm curious, like, what's your report card on Biden so far and how it measures up to Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's broadly been the case really since 1945, because the grand strategy, which is that the United States needs to rule the world through military and economic power, has remained the same. So you have differences between you know, a Truman or an Eisenhower or a Trump and a Biden, but at the structural level, which is where I think the left needs to focus most of its energies, it's basically been the same. Um, I mean, the biggest thing that Biden did, which I think is genuinely, if someone else was in there, they wouldn't necessarily have done, is leave Afghanistan. Um, I'm not not sure every president would have done that. That was a genuinely the agent of Biden in there didn't do what the structure necessarily said. But when it comes to everything else, things have been pretty much the same. And then I think you need to, we on the left need to think about why. And I actually think this is an important moment for the left because we've been focusing for so long um, on the left on things like the CIA and intelligence and all of these dastardly deeds that the United States has done since 1945, since World War II. And I think that our, our educational mission has basically been succeeded. I, I would guess if you ask the average American, is the CIA doing things around the world that you don't know about and that may be understood as nefarious, they probably would say yes. Now, they may say they support that because it's in you know America's interest, or they may say they don't support that because they're moral people or whatever, but people know about that. And I think we have to face at the moment that this, this sort of like sunlight, shining light on, on, on the nefarious deeds of the U.S. government abroad hasn't done much, and that we need to focus on the fact that things really don't change that much between presidencies and why that is. And so the question or or, or where I would look at that is... is, um what are the structures that remain in place from presidency to presidency? And and there are these uh, gigantic 
things like the military industrial complex, the, the relationship between defense contractors and the government that you know, there's some form of military Keynesianism where the government gives defense contractors money and Congress people are happy with that because it provides jobs to their districts. And so that's why, you know, everyone supports arming of Ukraine because it allows defense contractors to increase their profits. There's also the, the um, unaccountable uh, institutions within the state, you know, the, the literal bureaucracy that people who remain the same from presidential administration to presidential administration, who basically all buy into the grand strategic goal of primacy. So, you know, lower level state and defense department officials that basically remain the same. Then there's the group of unelected people who effectively provide research and strategy for the U.S. government in the form of think tanks like the Rand Corporation, CSIS, many, many more that are, are, are effectively unaccountable. So, you know, we on the left focus all of our energies on these dastardly deeds when I think we need to really refocus on these larger structures because I think if these structures don't change um, and I don't know how to change them, uh, U.S. foreign policy won't change. Yeah, I mean, that's a, those are all really good points. I think that one constant, too, is that, and you've written a lot about this in the past few years, is there is this ongoing, no matter who's in charge, kind of American decline taking place. Uh, and it doesn't and really matter uh, at this point if it's a Republican or Democrat, because, again, foreign policy, because of a lot of the structures you just mentioned, are on a certain trajectory. And I think one of the things that does demonstrate some sort of decline is the war in Ukraine and the outcomes that we've seen, not just in what's happening in Ukraine, but around the world. And we can get into some of those specifics soon. But first, I'm curious if you can maybe talk a bit about the war in Ukraine, because, you know, Biden's gone all in with this war um, while also escalating with China, which just seems like we're in a crazy place right now where both of these things are happening at the same time going after Russia and China. But before we even get to China, I mean, what do you have to say about the war in Ukraine? We're almost a year in. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it might be closer to the one year anniversary, which is February 24th. Um, what's like, yeah, like, what do you have to say? What is your reflection on the first year of the war uh, in Ukraine? Uh, no, of, of course. Um, well, I, I think the difficulty of speaking about what the government wants is that the government is a complex thing and there are different constituencies. But let's just say I don't think many constituencies in the government would be upset if the Biden administration just keeps on providing weapons and it's a kind of stalemate a la Kashmir where it's a quote-unquote frozen conflict where it kind of goes on forever. There are periods that are hot. There are periods that are cold. But it effectively mires Russia in a, in a war that's going to take a lot of their energy and it's going to take a lot of their resources that they don't really have. I think that's a pretty positive outcome for the Biden administration. Um, not to say that, you know, if, if Ukraine launches some huge counteroffensive and pushes Russia out of the Donbass and somehow retakes Crimea, which I don't think is really possible, that the administration would be sad about that. They would probably be happy about that. But I think they're, they're, they're happy with either outcome that doesn't lead to a Russian victory. Um, that is my larger sense. Um, but I, I think the war in general just highlights let's talk about the perspective of the left because that's what you never hear fissures within the left over what to do vis-a-vis -vis the national security state because obviously you know th there's further left and there's less further left but i'm writing a piece in there right now for the quincy institute that it will be out by the time this comes out i believe on like how someone like matt Duss argues the, what the u.s should do in ukraine and someone like uh what i argue it and does effectively asserts that it, you have to um, promote left-wing principles um, by sending weapons, and, and I think that's wrong for a variety of reasons. But what is important is that I think we on the left need to identify these potential fissures and how we relate to the national security state. Otherwise, we're never even going to pose a critique, and then we'll just become what we've basically been, which is like a lifestyle brand. You know, yeah. like you and I both have podcasts, and like it's like cool, like people – like. I, I, they they say like I'm a communist like okay what does that mean without a communist party you know it's effectively a lifestyle brand it's like saying I'm a punk or uh, or I'm a goth are we are we influencers uh, I, I, you are uh, you you're more influencing than me I want I'm a wannabe influencer hey any but, brands who are listening <laughs> yeah I'm willing, remember when parade sent like underwear to everyone I'm willing to parade send me. Um, <laughs> But I think like now, given the fact that I don't think the left is going to come close to touching power for a while, I, I think this is actually a time to think through what are we actually doing? Are, are we just a lifestyle brand or, or is there a coalition that could be built in, in a democratic way? Um, and I think the war in Ukraine highlights fissures within 
like I would definitely put dust on the left. I know some people would say no, Ooh, but then that's, that's just interesting. Well, be, if he's not on the left, then there is no left, right? Well, I, I, I guess. Mean, are, well, so are we talking about? I guess it depends what you're talking about, right? If you're talking about people who are in power, like if we're talking about the power structure, people who are inside of it. I mean, dust does work for what is he? Bernie Sanders, like top foreign policy advisor. Yeah, he was he was Bernie's foreign policy advisor. Yeah, and now oh, he's at um, the Carnegie Endowment, I think. Okay, so he's somebody who's like in the mainstream. So I guess if we're talking about like who's in positions of power, whether it's think tanks or whether it's Congress, then yeah, he would qualify as a left. Because even when you look in Congress, who qualifies as being left or left-leaning would be the squad, which none of them are talking about not funding the war. Ukraine, in fact, there was that uh, progressive caucus letter that came out uh, that was immediately retracted because of the pressure to yeah. not even promote. And it wasn't even about we shouldn't arm Ukraine. It was just saying we should prioritize diplomacy. So I guess right. it depends what you mean by like who, what left are we talking about? If they're not on the left and there is no left basically in power. Well, right. I actually tend to think there is no left in any positions of power, but I mean, well, I then guess th it's th then that's thing. the thing, right? Then it's yeah. just that. So, okay. So this is the question, right? Can you be a political movement if there's no institutions and there's no one connected to power? Or are you just like thinking in your brain, I have a moral position and this is why I, you know, identify with this political philosophy that is totally disconnected from power because, and this is, people don't like hearing this, but I, I and I don't mean it as a criticism because I, we agree on everything, but right. But if it's, uh, or, or most things, I presume. I don't everything, know, absolutely yeah. everything. You heard it here. Yeah. Somebody go ahead and clip that the next yeah. time I have a bad opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I agree with Ronnie. Yeah. But, but I mean, this is like the serious question, right? Like, how do we not just be a lifestyle brand, right? The whole neoliberal system basically forces people to be individuals and declare, like, I'm a, I'm a third worldist Maoist. What the, what does that mean in 2023? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything, right? Because you can't. These things don't mean anything if they're not connected. To movements or institutions, they're free-floating signifiers about one one's moral position. So I think we need to be much more self-critical in, in in that regard, so that we don't just become a lifestyle brand with people yelling at like each other on YouTube, which is effectively what the left is post Bernie. It's a bunch of like made-up drama about various YouTube influencers screaming at each other. To me, that's not a left. That's a lifestyle brand. Mm -hmm. So may, if, if Dust is the only left-wing person who is able to get in power, or if the squad is the only left-wing person, uh, people that are able to get in power, that indicates something about what the left actually is as a pragmatic material thing, right? If you're influenced by Marx as I am, the material matters. The free-floating ideas are nice. You could have whatever idea you want, but it's not connected to anything real. And so these, I think, are the hard questions we need to be asking ourselves post-Bernie, because otherwise, I think we've already dissolved into a lifestyle brand, absent yeah. Bernie. No, I mean, I don't I don't think you're, you're wrong there, but I also think we have to look at the reasons why. Like, is it that there is no left movement on the ground anywhere? Like, I think it's like a bit more complex than that, because it's also what our system allows to be a part of it. Like, right. So Bernie Sanders running for sure. president. For they're they're going to defeat us. Exactly. Like it's like the, the entire system is made to not allow anybody on the left to enter it. And then if they yeah. do, there's so many mechanisms in place to make sure that you stay in line on certain issues, which is what we've seen happen to people who have tried to get out of line on certain issues, uh, which you've seen with certain members of this, this, you know, I hate the word, the squad so much. Oh my God. No, I, I know like, what can't. you mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but no, I mean, I think there's more important questions for sure. If we can't overcome that, then there is no left. I mean, that's just the pure, like, like when it, that's what matters is power. Everything else is nonsense. And if we can't overcome that, then there, then we're just a bunch of people with nice ideas. Uh, yeah, well, and, uh, and that, the thing is we live all of our lives online and people think that is meaningful politics. It's not, it's just not. You know, it is just a bunch of people with ideas and that is not important. And frankly, who cares? And we'll be sweeped into the dustbin of history. Are you so, trying to say that revolutions don't happen on Twitter? Is that <laughs> I mean, things like this was the great, the great hope. And it's just, I, I we have 15 years of data. They don't. They don't I refuse really to believe that my Instagram stories don't change the world. Well, your Instagram Daniel. stories do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't know about anyone else's, but like these are things that people don't want to hear because their identity. This is this is the thing. It's a lifestyle brand, right? Because people's identities are wrapped up in saying I'm a communist. 
right? And so if you tell them that's a meaningless statement, they feel bad because they're neoliberal subjects and they have a consumer identity that is communist. When this is totally disconnected from movements and powers, which is the only thing that matters in politics. Harold Laswell, who is by no man, some, uh, no means someone on the left, wants to find politics as who gets what when, right? If you're not speaking to that question, who gets what when and why, then you're not doing politics. You're just listening to a punk band that you like. Yeah, I guess it really does depend like who we're talking about. I also just, I can imagine when your piece comes out, there's going to be some back and forth on Twitter that will be somewhat amusing to, to see play out. Um, but I will say like, I just don't, I want to be careful not to like diminish the work that some, that people are doing in their own communities on the ground when it comes to certain issues. And I understand, like, I I think you're speaking to a very specific segment of people, but I also even think, and I'm one to be harsh on DSA, don't get me wrong, but I also do think, like, if you compare the U.S. left to, like, the left in other countries in the global north, especially post-war in Ukraine, it's actually done a better job of at least maintaining consistent positions, whereas, like, the left in Europe, for example, has just become completely pro-NATO. So, like, I do appreciate that you do at least have leftist groups in the U.S. that are, like, willing to say, no, like, NATO played a role in uh, escalating and bringing us to the war we're in right now. The U.S. has played a role in provoking. We shouldn't be arming, sending arms to Ukraine. Like, basically everything that you're saying that I don't actually think Matt does does represent, but I totally get what you're saying because the DSA doesn't have power, and Matt does. None. It's it's basically a social group. Matt does has power. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not like he's president or anything, but but, he's no, but it's in this in the system and making changes, yeah. right? And if you're not in the system, I mean, okay, then you're not in the system. <laughs> you got to take over the system. That's the goal, right? I mean, otherwise we're just talking, right? Yeah. Otherwise, if you're not in the room saying "Don't send arms," then who cares? Uh, ultimately, who cares? I, obviously. I'm being extreme here to make a point because like no, you said, you. We, we could do all the, like the, the, you know, everyone does good and they're, you know, all that blah, blah, blah. And we're all nice people and, and all that. But the only thing that matters is power and we have none of it. And we have no, to it's in a conversation. Why. Yeah. It's also a conversation I think people are scared to have about. Right. Like, because it makes people yeah. feel bad. Like, like, because, because people, as we all do invest meaning in their identities and you don't want to hear that your identity isn't having an effect on the world or that your YouTube show isn't changing policy. I get it. I get it. Or or whatever, (laughs) you know, like it, and I mean, like, and that's fine. Like infotainment is fun. I do infotainment, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a, people should stay informed. That's not meaningless. Uh, or at least it's, I mean, I think it actually is meaningless in the way our democracy is constructed. In the grand scheme of things, it is, especially like when there's algorithms that make it so we'll never be as popular as like Joe Rogan or something like that. Um, I would love to see a day when that's what happens with either American prestige or dispatches is that we (laughs) reach like the heights of like where Joe Rogan's at. But I mean, okay. So speaking of Ukraine, I did want to ask for your reaction to the Seymour Hirsch piece that came out. I thought that it was quite explosive about, you know, Nord Stream being blown up by the U.S. with the help of of the Norwegian security services. Um, And of course, like the media either trashed him on uh, in their tweets or like didn't even engage with it. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. And that's how Hirsch has just been treated for so long. Um, you know, and, and uh, I mean, to, to me that that story makes total sense because it plays into the larger grand strategic goal of the U S just kind of wants to mire. I do think ultimately that's a pretty good outcome for the United States to mire Russia and getting Germany basically to just be on your side um, is, is something useful. And it's just like the media, has always treated Cy Hirsch disgracefully for for years and years and years. And he's had some hits and he's had some misses also. We have to be honest about that. Um, but it's, you know, it's just typical, you know, no one's going to listen to the heterodox. I mean, the media is just totally in hock to the grand strategic goal of primacy, as anyone listening to this show knows. Uh, they're, they're going to critique any heterodox position as basically beyond the pale, again, indicates we don't have power, you know, and, and these are the things that we need to be focusing on, the, the, the getting of the power so that the Cy Hirsch, you know, explosive reveal is, is taken seriously um, by people who are somewhat connected to the levers of power in a meaningful way. Because, like, this is what we should expect. It's like, it, it's like the other team is going to do what it can to beat you. Uh, yeah. that, that is what you should expect. This should, this should not engender consternation. This no. is exactly what you should expect, and you should be prepared to counter it. 
with strategies that somehow connect you to power. Now, the case may be in that in a hundred years, we look back and like they had no chance, like for these various structural reasons, like there really is no chance. And ultimately, I kind of think that, to be frank, uh, I think that the war was lost in 1914 <laughs> when the workers of Europe fought each other. Um, and like then the, 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 um Industrial capitalism was kind of like on its path to victory, but that's a question we can't know for a thousand years, so I won't be able to answer it. Um, but Very we have helpful. to be focusing. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So this is this is the question: like, how do we how do we be helpful in a meaningful way and do like an old power mapping of how you affect the system? And I think that's what we need to be doing because basically, I think the left the left gamble of the '60s was that revealing information would somehow lead to to change right mm-hmm. I, I hate i hate to use this phrase because it's so lame and corny but the old underpants gnomes joke step one reveal information step two question mark step three change right but i think that that act that 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 belief is actually steeped in a liberal ironically belief that rational exchange is going to engender political change and i think that is not the case right. that you need to the only thing again that matters is who gets what when and that's what we need to focus and on. No, no, who has power. No, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, there is something to be said about in- information can be important, but alone it's not, certainly not enough. I actually, there's something I, I think is interesting that's happening right now uh, as well when it comes to, related to the war in Ukraine. And that is for so long, I mean, since I've been like, a political person, actually my whole life, most of U.S. foreign policy has impacted like the global South, has impacted the Middle East, has impacted Latin America. But now we see something very different happening in the case of Europe. Um, you know, as this like proxy war in Ukraine drags on, you see European countries being pressured by the U.S. to implement these policies in many ways against their own interests in order to weaken the Russians, increasingly to try to weaken China. And it has me wondering if Europe, if these European countries actually have sovereignty. I always thought they did. But it seems increasingly the case that they actually lack an ability to have an independent foreign policy because of U.S. power in Europe. And I do understand that also like European leaders have a, have a similar ideology as American elites do. But I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are the, the first off, like the fact that we're in this era where like Europe is now looking like less for it's still first world, obviously, but it's looking weaker um, and it doesn't seem to be able to make decisions independently of the U.S. Uh, I would say in the final analysis, the U.S. could get Europe to do what it wants. The question is when when are they going to pull that card effectively, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not going to pull it on everything because then they won't be able to do that, I think. But but I think it's it's – I've been saying this for a long time. I think that you could view the North Atlantic world, particularly Germany, France, the UK, and the United States as kind of part of one polity, one like big North Atlantic polity that are like technically independent, but really kind of function, especially since World War II, as uh, a coherent political unit. And I think you're seeing that in in um, in how the countries have been responding to Ukraine and particularly what the United States wants to do with Ukraine. Uh, I mean, in in the long term, this could actually be good because this might hopefully begin to move countries beyond NATO because it's kind of absurd that the United States, that NATO still exists. It's it's ridiculous, (laughs) Um, both because its strategic mission has not existed for a generation at this point, Mm -hmm. but also why the hell is the U S funding European defense at all? These are, these are rich countries and they should have their fund, their own defense and and have their own sovereign. If they want to fight. Whoa, 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 Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That that's a right wing position. Also, of course he didn't do anything about it. Right. So it's all, again, it's just like saying things and then nothing, nothing actually happens. Um, But that could be a nice medium term benefit. If maybe you get younger Europeans to, to question why the hell their security policy is, dependent on what the United States wants to do, a country that's thousands of miles away. Um, but yeah, I would say European nations have limited sovereignty just because they're under the umbrella of the hegemon and have had since 1945. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I just to moving to another, like you mentioned NATO, I mean, I think that that's a very optimistic view that this might lead to like a weaker NATO because what we see is NATO, it, its funding is increasing it's becoming more cohesive as like a unit, more ideologically powerful. Um, And we also see, you know, of course, 
most assume because of the war in Ukraine that NATO is still all about countering Russia. But we also see more and more that the U.S. wants to reconfigure NATO into this kind of anti-China military alliance as well. And I'm curious your, your thoughts on that, considering that uh, the North Atlantic is not where China is. <laughs> this is, to me, one of the great... Uh, totally. This to me is like the great delusion of U.S. foreign policy that anyone thinks the U.S. is just going to be able to remain hegemonic in East Asia in 20 years. There is just zero chance that is possible. Uh, if you look at the GDP, just like pure, let's just do pure Marxist material analysis. The GDP has just been shrinking since the 1990s, and it's going to continue to shrink. And the United States and the North Atlantic world is not going to be able to fund um permanent hegemony in East Asia uh, against a, a rising China that even if there is some sort of like internal problem within China, it's just like, it's not going to be, you know, the lost century uh, again, that's never going to happen again. And just like pure material fact, the U S is not going to be able to be hegemonic in East Asia in right. 20 years, maybe earlier. So the question is, what does that mean? And what I think is actually going to happen is the U.S. is just going to pretend it's going to be able to be hegemonic until there's some crisis point, whether it involves Taiwan or something else. And there's going to be like, oh, sorry, we're not fighting World War III over this Japan and South Korea. See you later. We're out. Um, what a, what a, what a, what a, like a, a wise foreign policy would be would be some sort of like just security transition where – Japan and South Korea start paying for their own defense in a real way, start getting uh, sovereignty over their own defense in a full way, and the United States slowly retreats from the region. I don't think that is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's yeah. just going to be some, some, it'll be some crisis, and the U.S. will just like turn tail, and that'll be probably bad for the U.S.'s present allies there. That's actually like, I mean, that's kind of been a little bit of a pattern as of late. And also, I think like some of the anxieties of the U.S. that you're talking about or denial maybe about China's rise and what it means for America in, let's say, 20 years, you see some of those anxieties playing out in the reaction to that balloon. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And also like the whole, the, the, the big problem is that American capitalism and American liberalism, their promise to American citizens is that we'll be able to consume like, like an incredible amount. What is it? America consumes 20% of 25% of the world's energy, energy, a truly grotesque amount. Mm -hmm. uh, and that relies on cheap Chinese goods. So yeah. the question is, how they what, what Biden wants and what all these administrations are going to want to do is have their cake and eat it too, which is like fight China, get the sort of military Keynesian benefits of a of a renew new Cold War, but without affecting the reliance on um, Chinese production for American consumption. Because yeah. if you know during the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet Union barely traded. Like it's shocking. You go back and look at the numbers; it's like really nothing. There are like moments where there's a little bit, but like it is. It was not reliant on the Soviet Union for energy or 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 product or or, or um, Soviet exports. That's not the case with China, right? So there's a bigger problem because there's a domestic legitimacy question that I never hear people talk about because the whole legitimacy of American democratic capitalism again is consumption. What do you do when one you can't consume like like we've been consuming because of climate. And two, you can't really challenge China that much because I don't think Americans are going to be able to whatever reshore or onshore to the degree where they're going to be able to consume like they do with the massive amounts of cheap labor that are available in China and other countries in Southeast and East Asia. So these are like kind of brick walls that uh, that the, the people, the, the governments in this country are coming up against. And I never hear any of them ever talking about it um, because they have their head in the sands. They're so ideologically in tune to American primacy. Um, yeah. So it's going to be bad. <laughs> no. And I, I think that definitely like that, that was apparent at least to anybody who wanted to see it during the Trump administration, when he did try to implement these like anti-China policies with tariffs and all of these things. And all it ended up doing was actually screwing over companies and workers in the U.S. in terms of like, I think it was like with steel or something. I can't remember the specifics, but the yeah, point he had a few. Is, yeah. steel was the big one. Steel was the one that everyone was talking about. Yeah, But it, like, it just ended up hurting American companies and American workers and didn't really change anything for China. And then you saw during COVID just how reliant so much of the world is, uh, at least in the beginning of COVID, on certain like raw materials or basic products from China uh, and how it is disrupted like the entire supply chain system's 
involving almost everything. Right. So, and this is uh, just just very quickly. This is the problem when there's an international capitalist system in a world of nation states, because there's this global capitalist thing that doesn't obey borders, and there are bourgeoisie in in Beijing and in uh, New Delhi and in New York and in Mexico City, and they share interests, but they're still operating in a security environment in which, for the most part, militaries are nation state based. You do have organizations like NATO, but it's really the U.S. military and the Chinese military that are defining things. So these are the tensions that a system like that is going to produce. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't lead to like a horrible war, but it very well might. <laughs> well, and then I think another aspect of the at least the war in Ukraine and even increasingly the kind of pressure you're seeing from the U.S. to get people to get certain countries to not do business with China it does seem as though the U.S. is losing some level of power over its proxies. I mean, when you look at India or Saudi Arabia, the U.S. cannot get them to cooperate in, against Russia. Like, they, they're not getting on board with sanctions. I think the majority of the world is refusing to get on board with sanctions. Uh, Latin American countries are refusing to... to uh, to like submit to U.S. pressure to send weapons to Ukraine. Um, it does seem like the U.S. This does represent some. Again, I don't want to like over. I don't want to exaggerate it, but it does represent some loss of hegemony over proxies and allies. I think that's the case. I mean, I think there there's some slight differences. Like, I think the if the U.S. really wanted to exert the political will, it could kind of get Saudi Arabia to do whatever it wanted. I don't think that's true for India. Uh, I, I think like there's no way the U.S. could get India to do what it wants, no matter no matter how much will it, it exerted. Uh, Latin America depends on the country and depends how how far a particular leader is going to be willing to buck the United States, and that'll differ from country to country. Lula would be more likely than someone else, perhaps. Amlo might be more likely. Boric might be more likely. Or though Boric, it's a, a little bit unclear to me. But I think you're absolutely right. I, I think we're going to a. Um, uh, a unipolar moment to a more multipolar moment, but the U.S. is still going to be the most powerful. But if you think about it, whereas the U.S. was majority powerful, now it might be only the plurality powerful. But we're still living in a in a moment, I think, of incredible U.S. power, though wow. our childhoods and entire lives happen to be in an extreme moment of U.S. power, where U.S. was really the only game in town. That's changing, and that'll result in less influence, broadly speaking, um, over proxies, over quote-unquote allies, and over international politics in general. Yeah. I mean, also, you even see, like, weaker countries. Uh, and again, it's not like the U.S. is threatening necessarily or at least directly to sanction them, but it is interesting to see countries in Africa as well. I think it also speaks to the underappreciation for the role or what China and Russia have to offer. Like Russia is this kind of, they're both commodities powerhouses, right? Like people, countries need wheat from China, uh, Russia. They are, you know, they, they also, you know, get uh, gas from Russia. I mean, there's lots of things that China produces. So it's also, I mean, it speaks to that sort of increasingly multipolar moment where if I'm like some tiny country, do I want to piss off the U S no, but do I want to alienate these, this other massive economy that I rely on for so much? No. So it's like, yeah. It yeah. There say. are places to go, right? Like you could go <laughs> elsewhere for things like energy and, and you could see that with India and Russia, you know, like India is not going to cut off its trade with Russia, no matter what the United States says, that's just not going to happen. Right. Um, and so that might not have been true in 1975. If the U S really wanted to like threaten India, uh, that they might have done. I don't think any threat the U.S. could do would would result in India changing its policy, and that's a shift. Yeah, and then I'm wondering, what do you think of uh, this this new candidate for president? Her name is Nikki Haley. <laughs> She's a lovely woman. Um, yeah, so no, Nikki. I mean, Nikki Haley has announced her run for president. I think that she really represents like neoconservatism in the extreme. Uh, it would, of course, suck to have her as president. I I don't know what you think. I don't think she could win. The no presidency way. It's going to be Trump. All. It's going to be Trump. I don't, I don't, I don't think yeah. there's any way she, or the president yeah. say the presidency. I don't think she can win the nomination. Yeah. Um, but how do you think that whether it's Nikki Haley or Donald Trump, like how do you think a Republican presidency would shift foreign policy or would it even at this point? I in don't some think ways, really. Well, in some ways it kind of seems like neoconservatism is actually the default. I'm not really entire. I'm not entirely sure when that happened. Um, 
But I do feel as though it's the default on so many levels. Is it's at least the discursive default, but I, it would be hard for the U.S. to send troops anywhere, I think, going forward. Um, I don't think there's much energy, but I think the U.S. could increase drone strikes everywhere, you know, pretty easily. Um, but sending, like, doing an Iraq or an Afghanistan again um, would be tough. You could probably do a Libya again, you know, where, well, the where US US, send troops. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. But you could do so, that. That was a pretty extreme operation, you know, like of regime change. Um, I could see something like that happening again, but boots on the ground, I think would be tough because it's just not but, worth the political cost. Well, I don't necessarily think neoconservatives would be able to do that now either. Like they might want to send. No, I agree. They can't. No, I agree. Yeah. I no, no, they can't. They wouldn't be able to, even though like someone like Nikki Haley could use neoconservative language of democracy promotion and whatever U.S. hegemony, I, I don't think even a neoconservative president would be able to send troops. It's just, or wouldn't, because it's not worth the political cost of doing that again. Right. And then who do you think is going to be the Democratic candidate? <laughs> uh, Joe Biden. It's going to be amazing. It it's going to be, be Joe Biden be. And, then, and then Kamala Harris. It's going to be great. Oh, We're going to oh, have- Do you really think they'll keep Kamala? Oh, yeah. A hundred- how- I forgot she existed. The reason, the only way they would be able to not do it is if like a bunch of people like step forward and I don't, the Democrats have never been known for bravery. Yeah. But they also don't have anyone. Like I can't even think of, I cannot think of a single Democrat besides Joe Biden who could even win. Like, Uh, yeah, it's going to be Biden again. We're going to have octogenarian candidates like the soviet union in 1982 (laughs) it's gonna be great (laughs) it's very yeah that's america and then i wanted to ask you um you wrote well you didn't actually write you were interviewed about this by by jacobin a few months back it was about what socialists can learn from realism and that alone was kind of like a shock to me i'm like socialists can learn from realism so that said why don't you explain to us since you're surrounded by realists and a lot of the work that you do you really are Explain what is realism and and why should the left be looking to learn anything from it? So realism is is a lot of different um, – it, it encompasses a lot of different ideas. But I think the fundamental one is that the, the currency of international politics ultimately is power mm-hmm. um, and that that is what matters most. Um, and I think that would be a good lesson for the left to learn, as I've suggested earlier in this conversation in general, that we could have all the moral positions and all the right ideas, but it doesn't mean anything if we don't have the power. Um, so uh, that is what I think one could uh. could basically take from realism. I think realism, the way it views international relations, like its fundamental assumptions, like states always need to expand that the, the, the primary determinant of everything is the fact of international anarchy, which just means that there's no like uh, organization above all national states able to determine things. I don't think those presuppositions hold true. I don't think their theory of human nature holds true. But I do think the fundamental insight, which is that power matters more than anything else, more than arguments, more than ideas, is correct. It's just fundamentally a fact of international relations. And without that power, we could have the best ideas in the world, but who gives it them? That's true. And then I, yeah, no, that's, that's very true. And then I think that also we see this, this is an idea that is being funded uh, like very heavily by certain figures. One that comes to mind is Peter Thiel, but this idea that like there's a populist left and a populist right, and we have to bring them together. And that's why we should hold hands with Tucker Carlson. And cause we're all really at the end of the day, we're just on the same side. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on it's this ridiculous. Notion. It's, it's not yeah. going to work. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's just not going to work. And there are way too many divisions just intellectually and ideologically between the two sides to ever make that a working coalition. Uh, I mean, and I think Peter Thiel is mostly just, um, I, all those guys, um, uh, my guess is that they're like secretly building these like sea cities that they think they're going to escape to when civilization collapses, which is always funny to me because it would take about five minutes after the civilization collapses for all the workers who are there to basically just totally dominate them. What they don't realize <laughs> is that without civilization, their power goes away. Right. So like that would be, you know, even if we do end a nuclear poly- uh, apocalypse, at least the people who think they're safe, they're going to be owned. So that's how uh, I sleep at night. But the the, the whole populist left populist right thing is just ridiculous it's just not gonna work i absolutely agree with that and i actually think that 
when the supposed populist right types, especially the Peter Thiel types, Steve Bannon types, even suggest that they're full of, like they're full of it. They don't actually yeah, mean it's it. just nonsense. Like, what they're selling, what they're basically selling is like a life again, a lifestyle brand, right? These are these are they're just selling something to people who they want who who are going to buy it. They're also, I think, trying to appeal to the sort of disaffected types who might maybe maybe be on the left or may have been Bernie Sanders supporters. I mean, we had Steve Bannon like admit that at one point. I can't remember where, but it was like, yeah, we want to reach out to disaffected Bernie Sanders supporters because you want to turn them into your base. I don't oh, know absolutely. How. Yeah. I mean, he's basically building off the model that he experienced in his lifetime, which is the blue dog Democrats going Republican. And he thinks that you could get, I think he experienced that literally in his own family, if I recall correctly, like his family were blue dog Democrats. And then over the course of the eighties and nineties became Republican. Um, but I just think the political constellations are different enough now. And that that's sort of like, you don't need to hold hands with Tucker Carlson. Plus it's not going to work. <laughs> also, I mean, Tucker Carlson doesn't want to hold your hand. Like it's no, like, it's, does anybody it, buy that Tucker Carlson? You really can't ally with like, racists. Like you just can't ally with racists. That, that's a lie. Monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. Rockies monkeys. But also like the idea is what, like, what do I have? What? Okay. Like does Tucker Carlson want free healthcare for everyone? I don't believe he does. No, no. Or does he might Tucker- lie about, you know, like whatever, like, like he, he'll be like anti-immigrant and say, because he wants, you know, uh, Americans to get basically that, that would be the program, right? I, I, to me, a red line, obviously is you can't have a political coalition <laughs> with racists. Like that is just not a political coalition that anyone on the left should have. Fundamentally. It seems like so basic. And I'm yeah. just, I'm just like, completely stunned sometimes by the notion that, and I'm not one of these people who's like, oh my God, if you like go on Tucker Carlson, I think you're evil and horrible. Um, no, I'm not either actually about that because know. like you want to get the message out, right? And sure. uh, he has a ton of, ton of people watching. I mean, maybe don't go on Tucker Carlson to trash the left. Like that's where I might draw the line. But if you want to yeah. go on to draw attention to something important, go wild. Right. Um, but at the same time, like let's not live in this weird fantasy land where Tucker Carlson and the people who are behind him and like the MAGA crowd are somehow going to be our friends. It's and, and quite to, the and opposite. To, and to tie it back in, it, this is just happens when you don't have any left institutions, right? You get these free floating, weird political coalitions that are just kind of random because there's no institutional discipline. Political movements need discipline and they need organizations to impose discipline. Otherwise, again, you're fighting with whoever, Vosh or yelling oh, at Tucker God, Carlson. Oh, God, I forgot he existed. But that's Gosh. what it is, you know? Like, that's that's the sort of what happens without institutions, <laughs> without power. You get these weird things that have based, that are basically just <laughs> forms of, of ideas and lifestyle brands. You get, like, Vosh and Tim Pool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what it is. And they have a ton of listeners. A ton of listeners. It's crazy. Doesn't actually make any sense to me because if you've ever watched either one of these people, it's like the most mediocre, like n- ignorant nonsense that is like lacks any entertainment value. Uh, in I'm it. too old for like Twitch shit. You know, that is just yeah. like beyond like I, I don't I don't engage. I hear, you. <laughs> I hear you. Well, so on a on a more mature note, um, I want to ask you about well, this is related to the issue of sanctions, but I wanted to ask you about our dear old friend. The late Zbigniew Brzezinski. Um, Front of the pod. The ghost of Zbigniew Brzezinski. (laughs) From the grave, front of the pod. Um, So our good friend Zbigniew, he has this book, the famous book, The Grand Chessboard. Um, And he wrote something that I think is actually really speaks to a moment that we're in today. Uh, It's a quote from that book where he says, the most dangerous scenario, speaking of for America, the most dangerous scenario for America would be a grand coalition of China, Russia, and perhaps Iran, uh, an anti-hegemonic coalition united not by ideology, but by complementary grievances. And I think that we've actually reached that point. I mean, I don't know how anyone could deny that, actually. Like, obviously, during the original Cold War, the OG, um, you did have an alliance of countries, but they were allied. You know, a lot of that had to do with ideology. Like, there was the socialist bloc, right? Today, maybe there is some sort of like economic coherence in a way uh, among countries that are sort of allied, but mostly they're allied by grievances like China and Iran and Venezuela really don't have that much in common. Um, Besides the fact that the U.S. is like targeting them in some way. And so isn't this precisely like what's happening, what he warned about? 
Uh, yeah, there's, but I think you're right. Like a counter hegemonic to what? China's capitalist, you know, like, well, I, like I have to say, this is one thing that I don't think we entirely agree on, which is fine. I actually don't think, China, but anyways, but I don't think China is so like, some I, so my assumption is that China is a form of state capitalism and authoritarian capitalism that, that they're not, they're not pushing forward the communist revolution um, by any stretch. And See, since that's, Deng, interesting. that's how I would, that's how I would characterize Russia actually like a form of like a centralized character- capitalism. So this is my thing. This is why I think Fukuyama was right, but for the wrong reasons, it's not that liberalism has dominated. It's that capitalism has dominated. That capitalism really is one that people aren't really promoting uh, a, a communist or even socialistic forms of political economic organization in any country, really, any major country in the world. Like even Cuba? Like Cuba. You don't think, you don't Cuba I was going to say Cuba does okay. have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuba. Right. But a tiny, I mean, like, not not, not a very powerful country. I mean, right. 11 million n- neither like Russia that, nor like. China. I, I would I would character... I. I, I would de- I would definitely say they're capitalism. I, I they're capitalists. I think I, I think China is certainly integrated into the global capitalist system because you don't really have a choice. Like to be a functioning country in this world, you have to be integrated into that system on some level. Um, but I don't think internally it is. But we don't even have to get we don't even have to get into the internal dynamics of China. Regardless, I do think that there is something interesting happening in that. Even if you want to say China's capitalist or whatever. There's still very little that China has in common with Iran, has in common with Venezuela, hasn't, you know, has in common with Russia. And the one sort of like thread between all of those countries is that the U.S. is like sanctioning them and is on some level targeting them in some way. And it has brought together an interesting and very ideologically diverse coalition of countries. Right. Which I think it's going to be hard for them to keep, uh, to, to keep together. And I also think like counter hegemonic towards what, what's the counter hegemony. Uh, what might be interesting actually for the show is if you had, do you know, like the concept of state capitalism? This was a concept developed to like describe Nazi Germany in like the thirties and the forties by, by one of the guys who was at the Frankfurt school called Friedrich Pollock. And I think like state capitalism, which allows for things like centralized directed planning and directed investment is a really useful way to understand China and how you could still have sort of these like socialistic elements within a capitalist framework. Um, just to, just to go there. But like, I think again, you need some sort of, if you're going to be counter hegemonic, when Brzezinski was writing that he was imagining them as sort of like kind of communist socialistic. Um, and I don't see that really, you know, what's the counter hegemonic position. It's basically now China will be the, the ultimate power in East Asia, as opposed to the United States, which I think is, is is coming regardless, but I would be surprised if these coalitions would last. Well, no, I think there is that. That's actually a really important point is then what, so like then when we talk about a multipolar world, for example, it's like, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean an, an ideology at all. Right. <laughs> I see different forms of capitalism mean, uh, well, connected say, to different states. You could say, you could look at it that way. Regardless, it's like, there isn't like some, it's not like there's a communist block. I have heard arguments and I'm not an economist, so I don't really know how to like get into the details or really understand it that well. But there has been arguments made. I know Michael Hudson makes this argument about there being like, like there actually being some sort of like central state planning that is, that is like, that emphasizes sovereignty and economic sovereignty specifically. And that's like the anti-hegemonic force. It's still a little confusing, but regardless, I do think that the issue of sanctions does make it more likely that you are going to push these, this coalition of like axis, whatever you want to call it, axis of authoritarianism that's what the u.s likes to call it right yes yeah, uh, yeah. uh, this this group of countries together and also the issue of sanctions i mean it does seem like it's become this primary method of warfare for the u.s i mean to such an extent where absolutely yeah like you're- it's clean war yeah it's imagined as clean war it does an enormous yeah. amount of damage and, and there therefore it's able to fit in with the liberal ideology of what americans like to imagine themselves to be and i just want to make one point about the state sovereignty issue if that's what we're talking about as counter hegemonic that the u.s doesn't like di- totally direct your efforts it's not really counter hegemony that's basically carving out an independent space within the hegemonic global capitalist system as i see it right we, I think we can't forget what what were they actually imagining in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. It was a global system organized around socialistic principles, like a, a yeah. legitimately democratic socialist. Anti colonialism, like was a big right. part of that, right? right. Yeah, like, There's a yeah. whole thing. 
And we're nowhere near that. I, I think actually putting the, this in in the historical framework is useful because it actually does illuminate where we, we where we are today, which is in sadly a world totally dominated by capital, as I see it. That is very true. That is very true. But I actually I want to shift to the world is dominated by capital. The U.S. is still very powerful. And again, I don't want to exaggerate like the American decline that may be taking place on some level. However. It does seem like America's decline or anxieties about it can be seen increasingly in popular culture. And here, I this is more of a fun conversation. Like you see it in many different like TV series. TV is not even the right word. Streaming service series. I guess nobody really watches TV anymore. Um, and you actually wrote a piece on how the Rings of Power, which <laughs> was the Lord of the Rings. It was I think it was on Amazon Prime was where you could watch it, but how it reflected some level of like some reflection of where Americans of a certain age, like see themselves in that global order. I'm curious if you can talk a bit about your argument there. And then I want to relate it to a couple other shows that I've seen. Sure. So what I argued in, in the show, Galadriel, the elf was basically portrayed as a fanatic, like constantly searching for enemies in order to destroy and then thus justify herself. And, and I was arguing that that's kind of a metaphor for how the United States likes to envision itself as someone who's constantly vigil, uh, vigilant, um, sort, sort of um, finding evil and eradicating it wherever, wherever it is. Um, but because I think the United States lacks confidence and so, uh, particularly after the war on terror and the failures in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so I think you see these tensions and anxieties expressed in popular culture by giving a clear sense of mission, giving a clear good versus evil battle. And, and that was reflected in the, um, in the show. And I think this just relates to a larger point I have, which is that, you know, everyone here has, has heard the term the American century. And I'd say the American century was defined by two things. One, an ideological project, the idea that the United States would like make the world better. And then two, a material project of imperial domination. And I think we live in a moment where kind of we don't have the former. No one really believes the United States is like a great actor bringing democracy to the benighted peoples of the world, which people really did think at one point. But we don't have that project, but we still have the material basis of empire. And I think that that sort of tension um, winds up showing itself in things like the Rings of Power. And then, you know, I've also seen like, okay, I don't know if you've seen Last of Us, for example. I have, I have. Okay. And I played the video game, yeah. Oh, okay. I never played the video game. I actually am like one episode behind. So like, don't spoil that for me. But I... Things I get bad. <laughs> no. It's sad. <laughs> for those who don't know, this is like another kind of like post-apocalyptic zombie virus style uh, TV series. Though it's actually, I think, much different than any other zombie series I've watched. But I think that there is like a, a certain theme that I see a lot in a lot of these sort of popular culture series that are post-apocalyptic. And that is the idea, or not even post-apocalyptic, that are... You know, that's the idea that you know, they imagine some sort of fascist future in America. And I don't know if this is just because of like the Trump era and like liberals sort of being dominant in Hollywood. And that's what they fear more than anything. Or if it speaks to something bigger. I mean, if you also look at like Handmaid's Tale, I know that's based on a series, but it also does imagine this fascistic future specifically for America. And I don't know. I'm wondering if like you think that what that you think that says about like our anxieties as a country that we have a lot of these different television series that are very fearful of like some fascist takeover of the country. I, I think you're precisely right. I, I think that there's an anxiety in the United States um, that I, that defines American life and has for a long time. Uh, I, I think one of the issues though, is that liberals in um writing a volume about this right now on Cold War liberalism. But one of the ways liberalism, as we understand it in this country, became hegemonic was that it identified a series of crises. And so liberalism basically says, yeah, we know we're not great, but we're better than the rest. Otherwise, you're going to be taken over. And so you have almost uh, an anxiety built into American culture, and you see it bubble up uh, every now and again. You know, you think about the zombie movies of George Romero or the various 1980s apocalyptic movies like Escape from New York and the 90s Escape from LA. So these things bubble up now and again. But I think we've had it for a long time now. We've had like 15 years of zombie apocalypse shows. Yeah. And I really just think that shows the, 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 the condition that Americans 
um, imagine themselves to be in, which is one of apocalypse. The problem, though, uh, so that also indicates that the promises made by liberals in the 1990s about utopia didn't come true. But again, I don't see another, I don't see a real counter hegemony. So that's like the real question is how come there hasn't arisen an ideology to challenge liberalism in the moment of its obvious failure? Um, this is a, a historical question that I, I think um, people should be investigating both today and will be investigating in the future. Why was Fukuyama right? Why hasn't there been a real challenge to liberalism in a long time? That's a, it's a good question. And a part of it might be also like there's a kind of cultural hegemony that obstructs the ability to imagine a different future. I mean, even when you think when I mean, I live I've lived in Lebanon for like the last five or six years. And it, even in this region, like people are very heavily influenced by American television, American movies, uh, American comedy, like everything to the point where it you know, even though they're in their own cultures and their own spaces, there's this like international capitalist version of the world that like infiltrates your brain. Uh, and I think that I don't think that's the only reason. I mean, obviously, you also have American military power, the dollar, you know, the dollar hegemony, like oil is sold. And the, there's a lot of reasons. But I do think the the cultural hegemony makes a huge difference in being Absolutely. able to imagine. I, I, I think for, that's totally right. But even also for like leftists in the global North, I think that that's a struggle as well as like, we don't own any means except for like our small YouTube programs or podcasts. We don't have the means to create our own TV shows and like imagine our own futures because we're not like a bunch of rich oligarchs. So what I'm saying <laughs> is that there's any oligarchs watching the show, <laughs> yeah, please fund us. Yeah, please, please fund we, our we will take your money. Yeah. yeah, we will absolutely take your money. And 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 you've written screenplays or something before. I don't know. Yeah. Like, but no, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. But I also think that there's speaking to like the series and kind of like the decline that we're seeing. You also do do see a lot of shows coming out that just kind of mock American culture in a pretty extreme way. I feel like White Lotus is one of them. I really liked White Lotus because of that. But I do think that like domestically there's an increasing understanding that like we are not a healthy society at all and there's some sort of decay happening absolutely yeah. internally it, it, it's impossible to deny at this point but and this again raises the question so why hasn't there been a real counter hegemonic force and we may disagree about china but i would say that's why people look to china they want yeah. there to be a counter hegemonic force where from you know i, I just think it's basically capitalist um but like at least within the United States, I think we could agree there hasn't been a real counter hegemony. Maybe no, Bernie kind of get back to kind of a New Deal social democracy, um, but certainly not a genuine challenge to liberalism. And that's a really interesting historical question. And again, this leads me to like the super pessimistic, we lost it 100 years ago. When the workers fought each other instead of seizing the means of production, that was that. Was that. that was you know the world that Marx wanted to see was the workers becoming conscious in and of themselves instead of being tied to nation states, they understood themselves as a class didn't happen. They instead fought each other in the trenches. And that might've been it. You know, when we're looking back in a thousand years, we might say that. <laughs> well, so I actually think like with China, maybe Western leftists don't see it that way to some degree, but to developing countries, China does actually represent like a goal of, I mean, China has been able to eradicate extreme poverty and it's, I mean, in really high, like success and really successful kind of amazing ways. That so this gets into... Well, this is a what I'm saying though is like it's like it's like culturally China doesn't really have any sort of hegemony. They don't they're not creating movies that people are consuming in other global south countries. But people in global south countries are seeing that China has developed and the way Chi a lot of Chinese people see it as like social like a, a socialism in development. And I personally do think that China is a socialist country in its own right, but regardless, it has been able to go from this very poor country to raising the like more, you know, the raising its living standards, uh, creating this huge middle class, right? Like the mortality rate has gone up, extreme poverty has been eradicated. So people across Africa, people across the Middle East, and people across Latin America, like, do see that as like something to work towards. Like we're also developing countries, you know, and like, and so was China. If China could do it, maybe we can do it. But uh, but you know, that so said, China does lack the sort of internationalism that it had in the past. So, so this it's is not. Go ahead. So th this is what I would say. So, so both communism and liberalism are are shaped by the fact that they were formed in the 19th century, mm -hmm. and that these are ideas 
um, that basically premise themselves on developmentalism, like you said, as sort of this goal. Developmentalism is linked to consumption. But what we know in 2023 is that people cannot consume without killing the planet, like it was imagined they were able to consume in the 19th and 20th centuries. So this, again, is like a brick wall of 19th century industrial ideology that every ideology on Earth is going to face. Chinese, the Chinese government cannot, literally cannot have their citizens consume like middle-class Americans. The same with the Indian government. I don't and think they, I don't think, oh God, I don't think any of them do. In fact, India like consumes like very little for the amount of No, no, I know, I know. Like yeah. They, they, they don't, but that is the developmentalist goal. And Americans shouldn't consume, like what we do here is disgusting. I mean, just let me underline, the way Americans consume is truly disgusting. It is anti-human. It is anti-planet. And we shouldn't we shouldn't fly like we do. We shouldn't drive like we do. We shouldn't eat cheap meat and cheap calories like we do, right? But that this is the promise of the nineteenth century. More, aren't those more like structural issues, though? Like rather than necessarily like individual ones. Oh I no! Mean, like, you, of course, you know, it's all structural. The individual, the industry, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The individual consumptive choices. I'm not saying the individual consumer choice matters at all. All I only focus on structure because that's the only th- I, I assume I'm talking about structure. Um, but the promise of the 19th century was that everyone would be able to consume like that. A cow and a day, baby. And that's <laughs> right. And this is this is the problem of developmentalism as an ideology, and it is an ideology shared across left and right. You know, the promise of the legitimacy of the Chinese government rests on consumption. Particularly you know since everything you be, said you is know true. What you're, you know what you're inspiring me to do? I think it would be so cool to have like um to host some sort of debate on the idea of like what characterizes China's economy between two economists, one that thinks it's a capitalist economy and one that thinks it's a socialist one, but both economists, the one condition is both economists have to be like socialists. No, no, you but should. I mean, there's disagreement within the left. It's, it is, there is. And it's an, it's a very, I think, important conversation and an important debate to have. Um, because it basically, Sorry, because it, it basically centers on, do you think China is going to be an agent of some sort of revolutionary yeah. change? Yeah. 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 And I, I think that that's a conversation that needs to be had. I think a lot of people shy away from it because they're scared to touch it because they don't want to hear criticisms. And then some people don't want to hear China praise. And it's like, I would actually love to see that that conversation had. So I hopefully will do that at some point in the future. But that said, Daniel, I want to thank you for joining me again for another wonderful hour uh, of a conversation with you. Can you remind people where they can follow your work? Oh, yeah. Uh, If you want to, I I have a podcast called American Prestige, and I'm on Twitter at DBessner. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was such a pleasure. We'll have to do it again soon. Thanks, Rana.